Our God is so faithful, isn't he? He is so faithful. Get to see grandparents right here this morning, which is marvelous. You know, when you see generations of faith, it just warms your heart, doesn't it? Reminds you that God is a God we can trust, isn't he? He's a God who doesn't wake up one day, so to speak, and change his mind about his promises and his cares. Doesn't that encourage you so much? Don't you need to know that this morning? That the God who many of you in this room have worshipped for many years didn't change when the sun came up this morning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can rely upon him. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Please look with me at this This marvelous text, Ephesians chapter 1, we began several weeks ago, if you're visiting with us this morning, in a series in this wonderful letter of Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul to what we called the first week that we met together, what I at least made the argument of that this is Paul's sweetheart church. This is the church that Paul poured multiple years of his life in whom he was, he was the planter of and deeply cared for and not surprisingly um, gives one of the most eloquent opening, um, we might say almost poems or, or, or prayer praises of speaking about the richness that he has received and they have received in the gospel of Jesus Christ and now comes in verses 15 to 23 to tell us how he prays for this church that he loves so much that we get to see the petitions of the Apostle Paul today. What does Paul pray for? What what do we see as the priorities of Paul's prayers for this church that he loves so much? We get to see that today in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 23. Let's, let's give attention to God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? In what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we believe that. We believe that this word, though given at a time and space in history, a word that 
was toward these Ephesian Christians as the Apostle Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, expressed your heart for this fledgling congregation there in Eastern Europe. We know that that prayer that was spoken for them and the thanksgiving that was offered and the petitions that were given is a prayer that remains true to be prayed for the likes of 21st century Middle Tennessee folk, of the likes of us here in this room. We would pray that this ancient prayer given by the Spirit to Paul would be a prayer that's prayed afresh today for the likes of your church, even us here in this room. And we would ask even on the front end before we dig in deep to this, your word, that you would come with that illuminating power of the Holy Spirit and you would have these words live and shine within us. They would become glorious and beautiful in our eyes, so much so that we would have this prayer form on our lips for your church in this day and time and we would see it by grace further realized. Lord, hear this opening prayer, and would you, to the degree that you have willed and wished it today, would it become so? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at this section in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in two ways with you this morning, and I I want to do it thinking about prayer. I want to do it thinking about prayer. Prayer is, well, it is, as one person said, the easiest way to humble someone is to ask them about their prayer life. The easiest way to humble someone is to ask them about their prayer life. How is your prayer life today? Rarely have I heard, don't know that I've ever heard someone say, it's awesome. It's, it's amazing. Like, it couldn't be better. There's no room for improvement in my prayer life. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. If I heard someone say that, I'll just tell you on the front end, I wouldn't believe you. I would find it difficult to believe you. Robert Murray McShane, great Scottish pastor, several centuries ago, said, what a man is on his knees before the Lord is what a man is and nothing more. What does, what does your prayer life say about who you are? What you love? What you care about? What you really, what you really long for? What's really the heartbeat and the treasure of your, your life? What does your prayer life say about who you are? We're looking at the Apostle Paul's prayer to the Ephesians. Um, how he's, what he's wishing for them, what he's wanting for them, what he's earnestly pleading with God for the people of Ephesus. How he enters into the throne of grace and, as the prophet Ezekiel says, really gives the Lord no rest 
he goes to them and speaks to the Lord on their behalf in order that they might be changed. What does he long for for the church? What would Paul pray for you and for me today? That's really what we have here in Ephesians chapter 1, 15 to 23. And there are two things I really want us to see in this. I want you to see from where Paul's prayer comes from. From where Paul's prayer comes from. Like from what heart it arises. I want you to see that in this, this portion of Scripture. And I want you to see, secondly, to where Paul's prayer goes. Where does, it, where does it go? Where does it fly? Where does his words point? What's the trajectory of his, of his prayer? Where does it go? It's coming from somewhere. It's got a past and a history. It wells up from a particular source, but it's also headed somewhere. Where does his prayer go? What does he want to see happen with regards to this prayer? That's the two things I want to look at with you. Today, Now, I have warned you, as I've studied this passage this week, I thought this should be three sermons. I know you're really surprised to hear that from me. This should be three sermons. There's so much here. And I take comfort in knowing that better pastors than me preach three sermons on this text. And so, you're welcome that I'm not giving you three sermons on this text. But I do think that we can at least begin to see the deep connections between these two themes in the text, where this prayer comes from and to where this prayer goes. And essentially, I want you to be listening for these two things. I want you to be listening for the thanksgiving, the heart of the Apostle Paul that's welling up with thanksgiving in this text. And then I want you to see, secondly, his petitions, what he's asking for, what he wants the Lord to do, where this prayer goes. That this prayer has a mission in it. Now the reason I want to talk about those two things in some ways bubbled up in a class I was teaching on Thursday afternoon on prayer with the students actually at, at New College Franklin. We were talking about prayer. And I asked them, where does, where does your prayers typically come from when you pray? When have you noticed Prayer being more of the reflex, if I can put it that way, of your, your soul. More of the instinct of your heart. When do you notice that that's the case? And they very beautifully, honestly uh, can, uh, said to me that when they're anxious, they find that they pray a lot. When they're fearful, they find that they pray a lot. When they want something, they find that they pray a lot. And I just said to them, I recognize that in me. I recognize that in me. I recognize that very often when I come to the Lord in prayer, I come because I want something from Him. And I want Him to do something for me. And I'm full of me. And I want to tell Him all about it that He might fix it. That's really the heart of the matter very often. And what that is, if you find that that's true in you, is very often... It's an indicator that when we come to the Lord in prayer, we're more focused on us than on Him. We're more focused on us than on Him. Do you notice that? Now, let me just encourage you for a second, because that may have been a little discouraging to say, oh, yeah, most of my prayer life is 
about me and what's, what I need. It's about me and my needs, right? That's my prayer life. The Father loves it when you come to him in your anxieties. The Father loves it when you come to him with your fears and your desires. When my children come to me and they tell me what they're worried about and they tell me what they're afraid of, when they tell me I want the keys to the car and a $20 bill, when my kids come to me, I actually love it when they do that. I love that because why? I love my children, and I want to know what's going on with them. I want to know what they're thinking, and I want to know what they're feeling, and I want to know what they sense that they need or desire. I don't sit there and go, you know, I know you're asking for bread. I'm going to give you a scorpion. I actually love to hear your needs, and I want to be able to meet those needs because I love you. If they only, though, ever come to me like that, the relationship will probably be shallow because it would be a clue that they come to me because they see me as a great resource to meet the things that they want or need. But they're, they're not coming to dad to be with dad because they love dad. They want to spend time with, with dad. And that's a different level of relationship, isn't it? That's a different level. That's a depth of relationship that any parent would want with their children. Now translate that to the, to the father. The father in no ways rejects you when you come with a laundry list of things that you want him to do and take care of. But do you know that very often that he, well, his greatest heartbeat, if we can put it that way, is to spend time with you because he loves you. And that you would want to spend time with him because you love him. Something of that is here in the Apostle Paul's actually heart in the opening of this, this prayer because notice that he's overflowing with thanksgiving as he comes to the Lord. And notice why it is he's overflowing with thanksgiving, just speaking to the Lord. He says, for this reason, I've heard of your faith in the Lord, Ephesians I've heard of your faith in the Lord and I'm praying to the Lord with rejoicing and with thanksgiving because it excites me to no end to know that your faith in the Lord is deep and real and vibrant and something of which your very life is sustained by. I've heard of this report. I know this testimony and I know that the Lord has worked that faith in you. I know he's at work in your life, and there's nothing more exciting to me than to see the Lord working powerfully faith in your life. Also, you Ephesians who are Jews and Gentiles coming together, two people groups that don't, have not typically historically gotten along, and now Jesus has brought you together by his blood, I see that you have faith in the Lord. I've heard of the testimony that you have love toward all the saints. You don't have a little favorite clique over here that you love to hang out with, but you're unwilling to work with these people over here who are different than you. I love that when I hear the report about you, church at Ephesus, it's faith that's growing and it's love towards all the saints. There's a vertical relationship, a deep relationship with the Lord in faith, and there's a horizontal love that's going out towards all the saints. And because of that, I can't help but pray to the Lord with thanksgiving for you. Isn't that awesome? Let me ask you, when was the last time your prayer was prompted to the Lord because you heard a testimony of what he did in someone else's life? When was the last time that your prayer was prompted in that way? You heard that the Lord had given faith to someone that had come from 
They, from darkness into light. They had come from, from death into life. They had been radically saved. Or a, a sin in someone's life who had been habitually struggled. Maybe an addiction that they had been battling. And, and the loosening of that sin and the power of that sin has happened in their life. And a greater embrace of growth and righteousness has happened. And it prompted you to pray unto the Lord. Or that you saw someone going out in ministry, loving those in the community in need of mercy and of care and compassion. And you saw the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit manifesting in their life. And you prompted you to rejoice in prayer. That's Paul's prayer here, you see. Is that he sees this work of the Lord happening in and among the people of God. Remember, this is a church that he helped plant. These are, if I can put it his way, Put it this way, his children in the faith, the church at Ephesus. And so I, I kept thinking about that this week, and I was taken to, well, John's third letter. Do you remember there's this, there's this verse in John's third letter that reads this way, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, parents can, can say that in here in this room, but let me tell you, spiritual parents can say that in this room. If you've discipled someone and you've seen that someone grow and walk in the truth, there's no greater joy than that. There's no greater joy than that. Spiritually or physically, whether it's blood DNA or Jesus' DNA, that's working in and through the work of discipleship, no matter which it is, there's no greater joy than that. That's the Apostle Paul's heart, just bubbling over in care. And this is the impetus for his communion with the Lord. Now, this is what I want you to just take away as an application at this point. If your prayer life is anemic, if your prayer life is just filled with only, Lord, have mercies and please do this for me, God. That's a perfectly fine prayer, but it can get very shallow in your relationship with the Lord. If that's the fair, the currency of your, your prayer, begin to ask the Lord for eyes that are on the watch for how he's at work among his people and in the world. That your heart would be attentive to it and it would be increasing with joy over where you see the manifest evidence of his fingerprints making their way in the world. Ask for that right now. Just ask for that. Ask that the Lord would have you walk through life not with, Lord, the cup is half full. Do all this stuff for me. But rather with the vantage point, the cup is brimming to overflowing. Look at what the Lord has done. And that be the spirit of thanksgiving that would mark your prayers. How much richer might your prayer life be if you had eyes to see what the Lord was doing rather than only eyes for wishing for what the Lord would do. That's a different thing, isn't it? The Apostle Paul here tells us that where his prayer comes from is from a heart that's welling up with thanksgiving over what God is doing in the lives and the hearts of the Ephesian Christians. Now notice this though. Not only does this heart and this prayer come from thanksgiving, from this source of welling up over what God has done, it immediately moves into where this prayer must go, which is really the, the, the depth of this prayer is in its petitions. And, and beautifully, John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians says, you have this wonderful thanksgiving of the Apostle Paul 
who is springing forth in in joy over what he sees the Lord doing. And then immediately he pivots and he says, but I'm not satisfied with it. I love the faith that I see in you, Ephesians. I love the love that you have towards all the saints, but I want more of it for you. I want more of it for you. He's essentially saying, yesterday's work of the Lord is not enough. We need a fresh work of the Lord today and tomorrow. We need his grace to be shot through in even fuller dimensions in your life in the days to come. And so he moves from thanksgiving and essentially says, what you've done in them, Lord, keep doing in them. Keep doing in them and do it, do it more. Grow them from one degree of glory to the next. Grow them in the, the, the vision of the shining face of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the, the glory of God. Increasingly do this spiritual renewal work in them. This is where the, the prayer goes. Look, look at it there in verse 17. He says, I pray all of this that, or in order that, here's the purpose clause of the, of the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's what I pray for you, church at Ephesus. It's what I pray for you, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God would be given to you by the Lord. Now, if you're in the Sunday school class where we're talking about interpretation of of Scripture right now, we, we may come back to this little point this morning, little teaser in for the Sunday school hour there, uh, of what we may touch on. But I, I want to just note, because there's complexity there in that verse that we can't get to now. But let, let's just note this. He's not saying, you don't have the Spirit, so I'm praying that you get the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit, so I'm praying that you get the Spirit. He's not saying that. I pray that you would have the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Because in the earlier text, in fact, if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 1, you could see this. If you turn back to verse 13 in the text, you see that he says you've already received the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of that future inheritance. They already have the Spirit. But now he's praying that they would be given the Spirit. Hmm. They have the Spirit, but he's praying that they would be given the Spirit. And it's clear the ESV translators think it's the Holy Spirit, because why? What do you see there in verse 17? Spirit is capitalized, right? Now, I'll just tell you in the Greek, it, there are no capitals, so that is a decision that the ESV translators have made. We'll wrestle with that in Sunday school. But what they're saying here is the recognition that More of what you have, I'm asking for. You have the Spirit that's dwelling within you, but I want you to be further shaped by, further dominated by the Holy Spirit, so much so that increasing wisdom and increasing revelation around the knowledge of God would be yours. Now, do they have the knowledge of God? Absolutely they do. They are already, already, right? He's praised the Lord. Why? Because they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have knowledge of who Christ is. Do they need more knowledge? You better believe they do. Do they need deeper knowledge of the knowledge that they have? 
You better believe they do. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that I preach on the same thing every week? Some of you are like, yes. Yes, I've noticed it. That like every week we talk about the gospel in some way, shape, or form. And are you not every week astonished by the fact that when you hear it, as I hear it, it's like it's the first time? It's like you needed to be reminded of it. Like you needed to go deeper into it. Like it needed to be further explained to you. Further applied to you. That you're seeing, in a sense, the same thing, but the same thing you see is not quite the same thing. It's deeper. It's more beautiful and rich. It's like, it's like having a bouquet of flowers on the middle of a, of a table with all of these. It's got tulips over here, and it's got daisies over here, and roses over here. And you're sitting at one seat at the table. And then next Sunday, you're sitting at another seat at the table looking at the same arrangement. And you're like, oh, I didn't see the chrysanthemum over there. Oh, now this is this. Oh, I see. Oh, now there's the tulips. The, the, all right. Same bouquet, same beautiful message, glimpsing other shades of its glory and of its, of its beauty. I want you to know more of what you know. I want you to grow in the wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge of the one in which you know. I want more of what you already have. We know that that's what the Apostle Paul wants for them because he says, This is a matter of illumination. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's what he says. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Do you know every week here at Cornerstone, before the preaching of the word, what do I do? Well, I pray. And in that prayer, you will notice a pattern. It won't be the identical words necessarily, but there'll be an identical petition that will be given. And it will be around asking for the Spirit of the Lord to come and take this word and make it alive to our hearts. Why do I do that? Because unless the Spirit of the Lord comes and takes these truths that are in black and white in the Scripture and applies them to your heart through His power and through His life, everything that we do is in vain here. There is is no crafting of a sermon that can break into your heart apart from the Holy Spirit. There's no hymn that can be sung that can have a spiritual impact on your heart apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no prayer that can be prayed that could ultimately enter into the heavenly places to be effective for the work in which it's petitioned for without the power of the Holy Spirit. We are utterly dependent upon the Spirit to work. We can gain biblical knowledge. You could walk out of here with doctrinal truths. You could say today, Nate taught us about illumination. Today, I think I could defend that if I had a quick test on it right now. And I could reference this piece. You could get all of that right, and I pray that you would get it right. Doctrine is critical. We've got to get the truth right. But the truth right is not the end of the game. The truth transformative in the heart and the life of the Christian is what we're aiming for. We're not looking for intellectually smart, doctrinally correct people. We're looking for changed lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. That's a different thing. 
Paul here wants them to grow in the knowledge, but with wisdom and revelation. Notice that. He wants the knowledge of the gospel to be drove home with a lively sense of wisdom and revelation, that things are popping out in their hearts as they walk in the glory of the gospel, and they're applying it and seeing how it changes everything. There's this wonderful section in C.S. Lewis's essays where he's talking about theology and its relationship to poetry, and he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, that is, I see the sun, right? The sun rose today. We can look up in the sky and we can see it. But he says, but also because by it, the sun, I see everything else. I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. I believe that the sun is up. And I can look at the sun and say, oh, the sun is up. But you know what also the sun does? It gives light to everything else in the world. And he says, you know, that's how Christianity works. When you begin to understand the gospel, it's not only that you believe in Christ and the gospel, but then you take the gospel and you apply it to the rest of life, and it comes under a whole new lens, all new brightness. The rays of Christ and his glory change everything that you look at, changes the way you look at trees, Changes the way you interact with your neighbor. Changes the way you work. Changes the way you parent. It changes everything you do. The gospel comes in and it enlightens the heart in such a way, not that you just see Christ, but that by Christ you see everything else in the light of Christ. I was touched this week by Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, where Paul says, Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Notice what he did there. Some of you go to, jo- go to your job. You're going to go to your job tomorrow, and it's going to be like, oh, my job. I've got to do these things, X, Y, Z. I've got to please that boss. I've got to get a paycheck. I deserve a raise. Like there's your, there's your like, you know how you're living? Like that right there? That's how the world lives in the workplace. There's nothing different about the way the world lives and all those things that we just said. Or you could go to your workplace and go, this is a calling from the Lord. He has opened up this opportunity for service in terms of care for the gainful employment um, for my family. I am not here to please the boss. I'm here to please the Lord. I'm working not for a paycheck or a raise, but for the future reward and the inheritance that is already mine in Christ Jesus. Now, let me tell you, whether you work at Chick-fil-A or you are a CEO of a company, that changes everything. That changes everything. The light of Christ begins to all of a sudden go, oh, I'm not just making widgets. I'm not just a cashier. I'm not just a nurse or a teacher Or a plumber. I'm a servant of the Lord who's been called in the vocation in which he's given me to glorify him and work unto him so that his his reputation, his glory would shine in and through what it is that I do. We could do that with every sphere of your life. And you would see not only that the sun is there, but you'd see that the sun changes the light of, of everything. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying, you see. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Now, why do I know that? Well, very quickly, because again, the clock is against me. 
in verse 18 and all the way through verse 19, we're told the three things that really change when you start having your heart enlightened. When this wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God begins to come and break into your life, here's, here's what begins to happen. You begin to know the hope to which you've been called. Hope fills your life. You begin to know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, how rich you are in Christ Jesus. And you begin to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Hope, riches, and power. That becomes the frame of enlightenment. How do you know that the Holy Spirit is enlightening you to the knowledge of him with wisdom and revelation? You know the hope of your calling. What, what is the hope of your calling? Well, very simply, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He'll bring it to completion. That's my future. Nothing can stop that future. I have total hope in that in which he has called me. That every knee and every... Every tongue, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the hope of the calling of the future that is mine. That's, that's enlightenment. If you want to know the spirits at work in you, you're living with a sense of that. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the, the saints. Again, we might debate this one a little bit in Sunday school today. We'll see. But notice this, back in verse 3, what did Paul say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Notice, listen to this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours right now in Christ. So we said last week how we live with a, a mentality of scarcity. We don't have what we need. A display of enlightenment by the power of the Holy Spirit, with wisdom and revelation around the knowledge of God, is that you walk around with a sense of the riches of the inheritance that are yours in Christ Jesus. You're overflowing with a sense of that. You have hope for the future because you know that he's going to bring it to completion. That was he's begun. You're in the present, living as the richest person on the face of the earth in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, it dispels the fear because why? The immeasurable greatness of his power is toward you. It's toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Now notice, Paul is just piling up the, the, the adjectives there, isn't he? Immeasurable greatness of his power. Right? He's, just, he's like, I can't get at fully how great this power is. And so I just want you to know, nothing can stay the hand of the one who has come to save you, to sanctify you, and ultimately to glorify you. Now, I just want you to just very quickly remember who the Ephesians are. What's going on with the Ephesians right now? They're experiencing opposition. They're encountering persecution. They trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and immediately we're told when we read the book of Acts that riots started breaking out in the city. That, that the diverse opinions of the Apostle Paul and others were persuading people to join this, this, this group called the Way, these followers of Jesus Christ. And immediately their life didn't get better. How many times have you heard presentations of the gospel that basically say, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and your life will be awesome from here on out? I just want you to know that's, that is a, a half reality 
that's often told as a whole truth in our own day and time. Will your life be awesome and amazing in Christ Jesus? Yes, not in the way you're probably thinking. Normally in a North American frame, that means health and wealth and prosperity and my life going smoothly and all those things. Now, if you read your New Testament, the people who are most devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, would you describe their life as health and wealth and life going smooth? Apostle Paul writing this letter probably from prison. Stoned in Lystra, thrown out to die, and then goes back into the city to evangelize more. Now he's singing while he's in prison. So something's awesome to him. But probably not the smoothness of his life. The Ephesians are having to walk through the disillusionment that sometimes... When we follow Christ, the wheels fall off of our life. And things become increasingly difficult. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to not see this with the eyes of the world. Don't try to understand the gospel and its impact by the eyes of the world, by the way things are going in the circumstances of your life. I want you to see it with the eyes of faith. That you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want your eyes to be enlightened in this, that your hope is not in this world. Your riches are not in this world. And the power is not in the Ephesus magistrate. The power is seated on the throne of heaven, and you're in him. Do you know that's the whole point of the end of this section from verses 20 to 22? Is what does he say? I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Who by his might raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Who has made all of his enemies a footstool for his feet and who feels all in all. I love that from the Apostle Paul. You know, he's not saying... This is so important, right? He's not saying, you have a lot of power at your disposal. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people really like you. I think you're going to make it in life. You've got influence. You've got power. It's not a wish. It's not a pep talk. It's not a positive channeling of affirmation here. We, we really miss this a lot, even in Christian communities. We just try to pep each other up. Do you have positive thoughts? That's, that's not what this is about. He's rooting this in history and reality of a changed world. You live in a world where a man came back from the grave. His name is Jesus. And he's saved you. That's the world you live in. That's the reality you live in. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. The resurrection is underway, in other words. People are coming to know the Lord. The kingdom is spreading. I want you to see that reality. That reality is not a wish. He's rooted it in the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been resurrected and ascended on high and been given all authority, Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And that all is a very interesting word in the Greek. It means all. Like everything is under his authority. Like whatever political party you think is not under his authority is under his authority. Whatever circumstance in your life you think is not under his authority is under his authority. Whatever tragedy, I have friends yesterday in Mississippi who are affected by the tornado that came through. Under his authority. 
All things good, bad, and ugly under His authority, working together for His ultimate glory, lifting us up to recognize the hope to which we've been called, the riches of the inheritance that are ours and the immeasurable greatness of His, of his power. Listen, some of you in here, right? you're fighting, you're fighting habitual sin, you're, you're battling chronic illness, you're, you're unemployed and there's no, there's no jobs coming your, your, your way. You're, you're, you're struggling to, to, to make ends meet. All kinds of there's strife in marriages. There's, there's tension between parents and, and children. There's all kinds of, of battles that are happening in here. And he wants you to know there's a hope in the calling of the Christian that's beyond the pale of the present sufferings. There's a riches that are right your, now yours that are in Christ. And ultimately, there's a power that the thing you're struggling with that feels like it's so big and it's going to crush you is ultimately going to be crushed by the one who has already crushed the head of the serpent. By the one who has already on the cross defeated your greatest enemy, sin and death. If he has defeated your greatest enemy, sin and death, do you think your little marital strife is a thing for him? Do you think the little struggle of sin that you're dealing with right now is a deal for him? The confidence that we should have in the power and the victory of Christ. He's saying, walk in the hope of that calling. Walk in the reality of that calling and you will know what it means to grow even further in the faith that you have in the Lord and the love towards all the saints. By God's grace, don't you desire for this prayer to be answered? Answered in your life personally? Answered in our life congregationally? Answered increasingly in our community? Answered increasingly in the world that the nations would come to know Him? Friends, it's a matter of time before it is answered. Because the prayer that Paul has prayed here is rooted in the truth of God's promises. It's not a wish, it's a certainty. That he's asking to break in early on you and me. It's coming. Let's pray towards the end that we know is sure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, would you help us be renewed in this? Would we become prayer warriors like the Apostle Paul who pray like this? Who take these petitions who overflow from this kind of thanksgiving and that our measly little prayers about just things of the earth that those would begin to, 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 to be scarcer in our prayer life and the fullness of these kinds of petitions would become the language of our prayers increasingly as we're shaped by the priorities of your word. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit to do that in us. Give to us, your people, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Give us this spirit Give us this spirit. Without this spirit, there is, there's, no, there's no growth in these things. But with that spirit, there would be no way for your hand to be stayed in accomplishing these purposes in the life of us, your people. Lord, do this, we pray. Hear this prayer and answer it. In Jesus' name, amen.